What is up? Good morning. You know, whenever I say what's up, I am transported back in time to being a teenager when it seemed like sup was the only greeting that you could get from a teenage boy. I know that some people still use it, but um, I just have these vivid and kind of disturbing memories of walking down my high school hallway and guys going, sup, and like the little head thing was part of it too. And I, I could never understand why they would just keep walking after that. Like there was never a pause in which you could answer the question that they had just asked. And I don't think it was until college when I had this awkward moment with a guy who was like, sup? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just working on some homework. What's up with you? And he gave me this really confused look. And I was just feeling great because I had actually managed to like get an answer in. Um, it hit me in that moment that sup is a rhetorical question. <laughs> like people ask it and they don't expect you to answer. Did everyone else know this? Because I did not know this. Um, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> I just wanted to share with you some of the struggle that it is to be me and express it. I would genuinely love to sit down and hear how each one of you is doing and ask you what's really going on in your lives, but this is neither the time nor the place for that. And so I will simply say, sup, Kessid. <laughs> My name is Lindsay and I'm one of the teachers here. We are at the tail end of a series called Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, Choose Your Own Adventure has been an effort to get back to basics in certain ways and to explore something totally new in other ways. In this series, we're talking all about the Bible. Go figure. <laughs> but we're talking about what it is, how it works, why it matters, and what we do with it. Reading the Bible, um, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably noticed is one of the most fundamental parts of being a follower of Jesus. And it can also be one of the most daunting things that we undertake as followers of Jesus. And so in this series, we've been trying to kind of debunk some of the barriers that keep us from engaging the Bible on a regular basis and learning together how to make the Bible a regular part of our lives. The title, Choose Your Own Adventure, has to do with this idea that the Bible is a collection of adventure stories. Each story in the Bible is kind of like one little piece in a giant mosaic. It makes one big cohesive picture, but in each little colored chip of mosaic, we see humans responding to God. Kind of like the Choose Your Own Adventure books from the 90s and early 2000s, um, where at the end of every chapter, you as the reader would get a chance to choose what would happen in the story because you could um, you were given a choice, and you could choose which chapter to flip to next, and the story would unfold. Um, it's not unlike that, in that we each get a choice how we're going to respond to God. I do want to point out that the title that we've selected is not Choose Your Own Truth or Choose Your Own Consequences. God is still God on this adventure, and God's word in Scripture is very clear about what is true what is right and good and beautiful, and what happens when we choose to go off and do our own thing without God. Every week, Danny's been having us pick 
um, one of these choose-your-own-adventure books to tie into our message, and so I picked The Abominable Snowman. Now, when I think of The Abominable Snowman, I think of um, this guy. This is The Abominable Snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I grew up watching. Um, he's a very friendly kind of monster. But apparently that is not what the authors of this book had in mind, so let me just read the back cover to you. You and your best friend Carlos have traveled to Nepal in search of the fabled Yeti or abominable snowman. Last year, while the two of you were mountain climbing in South America, a guide told you about the legendary creature and you haven't stopped thinking about the Yeti since. Carlos arrived and went straight into the mountains when, where a Yeti sighting was reported. He hasn't been heard from in three days. A late monsoon storm has moved in and the mountains are almost impassable. You know Carlos will depend on you to do the right thing, but what is it? Mountains, monsoons, yetis, um, those things don't really apply. But um, there are two ways that I want to tie this book into our message for today. And I'm going to give you one now and one later. The first is, if you grew up in America, you've heard of the abominable snowman in some kind of folklore. Um, in fact, as I understand it, the abominable snowman is a yeti, and so is Bigfoot, who's a really big deal in the Pacific Northwest. So it's very possible that we're dealing with Bigfoot's Arctic cousin here. Um, but when I was flipping through this book, spoiler alert in case you plan to read it, in some chapters, the abominable snowman eats you and Carlos, and then in other chapters, he's like this benevolent Wookiee or something who saves your life. So basically, no matter what assumptions that you brought with you about the abominable snowman, you might be totally surprised to find that there's a whole lot more to his story. Today, we're going to experience a story that many of us have probably heard before. It's kind of famous because it's a weird little conversation that Jesus has with one of his disciples. Um, but there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. In fact, what I want to submit to you is that this particular story from the Gospel of John makes no sense unless you read it in the context of the Bible as one big story. As I was praying about what to teach on today, I was asking the question, what is one thing that I wish I had understood sooner about the Bible? There's lots of things. Um, but if I had to pick one, it would be this. The Bible is a story. The way we say it at my workplace, the Bible Project, is the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. So Jesus is like the point that the whole story is driving at. And if you never understand anything else about the Bible other than Jesus, you are still doing really well. But to understand Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, we need to be continually familiarizing ourselves with the whole story of Scripture, including the Old Testament, which can be harder to read, but it's a prequel to Jesus. It's like his backstory. Within the collection of stories that is the Bible, there are a lot of different literary genres. We've got true narrative, dialogue and discourse, poetry and prophecy, and we can't engage every genre the same. It's just like if you're going to sit down and read a collection of love poems. I hope you're not going to come away frustrated that you didn't get instructions for how to put together your IKEA furniture. Different genres accomplish different purposes. 
So for me, it's been incredibly helpful to remember that if I'm reading something in the Bible um, and it doesn't immediately make sense to me, it's probably either because I need to engage that piece's specific genre in a different way or because that particular piece can only be understood in the context of a bigger story. The other thing that is important and I think really freeing about recognizing the Bible as a true story is what we're expecting to get from it. When you read a book about anyone's life or experience, you don't necessarily expect it to be a direct, like, copy and paste application into your own life, right? The same thing goes for the Bible. So when I read it, I'm not necessarily looking for these direct, one-size-fits-all, copy-and-paste applications. What I'm looking for is wisdom. The Bible is a collection of true stories from which we are meant to derive wisdom, meaning it's designed to be something that we read over and over again, that we process, that we talk about, that we come back to, and we come away with wisdom for how to live our lives. So. When I read, for instance, the story of Jesus talking to a woman at a well, I'm not coming away expecting that I'm going to stumble upon Jesus at a well. I suppose I could. Um, but I do come away with an understanding of how Jesus related to women, or how he responds to the marginalized, or something else he says in that story that um, he's the water of life, that he's the only one who can really satisfy my deepest longings and desires. Those are things that I come away with, pieces of wisdom. And that's just an example. The point is, as we observe God relate to humans in the Bible, and humans choose their response to God, we see some great and not so great examples from which we can learn about God's character and learn to be his people. To practice this today, I want to do something a little different. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story you can read in John 1, 35 to 51, but instead of just going verse by verse and dissecting the text and coming out with three main takeaways for you, which is also valuable and what I usually do, um, I'm just going to tell you the story as we find it in the text. We're going to use our sanctified imaginations and some other resources that I've consulted to fill in the gaps about the setting and context of this story. And I just want you to sit back and experience the story. Remember that we are looking for how this story fits into the larger context of the story of the Bible. And remember that this is a story that we cannot understand unless we keep other parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, in mind. See how it speaks to you differently when you let it just be the story that it is. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open to John 1, 35 to 51 or you can just watch the screens. I'm going to paraphrase some of what we find here and read other parts of it. There's not much meat on a locust. And as a result, there wasn't much meat on John. The baptizer, as many called him, lived off locusts and honey. 
The man was all skin and bones and straggly hair that had never been cut because John was a Nazarite, a person who had vowed to devote his entire life to God. Clothed in camel skin, he caught your eye, to say the least. John watched as Jesus approached him, and in his mind he saw again the first time that he knew Jesus was the Messiah. John himself had gained quite a following at this point, declaring to anyone who would listen that the Messiah was coming. God's anointed representative would soon be here, and in preparation, Israel needed to repent of their sins and purify themselves. He did all this from the banks of the Jordan River, this body of water that had come to symbolize purification in the Israelite imagination. Centuries previously, the prophet Elijah had also ministered here and called Israel to repent and return to covenant faithfulness with Yahweh. Centuries before that, the children of Israel had to purify themselves and then cross the Jordan when they entered the promised land. Entering those waters was akin to taking a spiritual bath in preparation for the coming of God himself. It was here that John did his work. John was the only child of Elizabeth, a woman who had been barren all her life and had already gone through menopause when an angel announced to her husband that she would bear a child in her old age. Biologically, having a child was impossible for Elizabeth. But this child was to be a prophet of the Most High God, to prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah's arrival. When Elizabeth, pregnant with John, met with her cousin Mary, pregnant with the Messiah, baby John leapt within her womb. Thirty years later, as John baptized in the Jordan and saw Jesus coming toward him, the baby who had leapt in the womb felt his spirit leap within him too. This was the Messiah. All of this flashed through John's mind as he stood again by the Jordan with two of his disciples. It was no coincidence that they were here at the location where Israel entered the promised land after God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The annual feast of Passover, where Israel celebrated God's deliverance, was finally being fulfilled in this man. He was the true Passover lamb sent to purify Israel once and for all from their sins, sent to symbolize life in the face of death, sent as a gift from a God who would not let his people go to bring the greatest deliverance of all. Behold, the Lamb of God, John called out. Read verses 37 to 39 with me. The two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. Did John's disciples know at this moment what they would come to know later? that Jesus' questions and invitations always had at least two layers of meaning. On the one hand, his invitation to them was straightforward. Come, see what I'm all about. 
But perhaps beneath that was a deeper implied meaning. Come and see. Spiritually see. Let the eyes of your heart be opened. Don't just come and observe. Come and be changed. Come and believe. So, John's Gospel tells us, the baptizer's two disciples became disciples of Jesus. Remarkably, these men believed without any additional prompting. It's as if they'd been expecting Jesus. And they had. For thousands of years, Jewish prophets had foretold the coming of Messiah, God's anointed leader who would come to take his rightful place as king of Israel and deliver God's people from slavery and oppression. One of those disciples, named Andrew, was so excited and thoroughly convinced, he went immediately to find his brother, Simon Peter. You can feel the enthusiasm mounting within him as he says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus and Jesus took one look at him and already knew him inside and out. Jesus said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Peter. Who was this person with the authority to change a man's name on a whim? The next morning, Jesus, Peter, Andrew, and John's unnamed disciple headed for Galilee. Galilee was a paradox of sorts, lush, green, breathtakingly beautiful. It's the kind of place you look at and expect to see sheep lying down in green pastures and everything peaceful and calm. But it was also a highly contested area politically and widely reputed to be the home of radicals. Jesus had grown up in the Galilee region in a town called Nazareth, which many people believed was the worst of the worst within Galilee. As they made their way through the Galilean countryside, Jesus found a man named Philip, who he also invited to join him with a simple, follow me, and Philip did. Philip, Andrew, and Peter were all from the same city, Bethsaida, or in Hebrew, house of hunting. Turns out it was a good thing Philip was from the house of hunting because Philip knew he needed to go get his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel was not easily won, the kind of man who had to be hunted down, in other words. Look with me at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip was making a very big claim by telling Nathanael that he'd found God's promised Messiah. He appealed to the highest authorities he had available to him, Moses, the law, and the prophets. In other words, the entire Bible Philip and Nathanael had both grown up with. He was basically saying, you know the holy book we've studied all our lives? It's all about this guy that I just met from Nazareth, the son of Joseph the carpenter. If Jesus was the fulfillment of their scriptures, it meant the time had finally come for Israel to be liberated from oppressive rule and for Israel's people to know hope again. 
every one of the disciples in this story so far had grabbed hold of Jesus immediately, like their lives depended on it, as if they had been waiting for him and expecting him to arrive at any moment. So Nathanael's response was almost anticlimactic. Look with me at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael called things like he saw them, and he knew his Bible. Now, in this case, he wasn't actually wrong. The prophet Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Raised in Jewish school, Nathanael knew this. He knew a skunk when he smelled one. As it turns out, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then raised in Nazareth. But Nathanael didn't know that. Philip's conclusion to him was completely illogical, if not blasphemous. But there was perhaps something more here for Nathaniel. People who can deliver gut-punching honesty with their words, like Nathaniel could, can only do so because they see things. Oftentimes, they even see things other people don't. Witness enough disappointment, human failure, and loss and the things you see in the natural world around you begin to outweigh the hope you hope that you see in the spiritual. In other words, you see enough letdowns and you eventually find yourself struggling to live with any kind of expectation that you're ever going to see any good from God. Nathaniel, as we will see, was a man full of irony his name meant gift from God, or God gives. Yet this man, named after God's generosity, had ceased to look for God's gifts. He didn't recognize the gift of God when he was about to stare him in the face. But maybe Nathaniel was more intrigued than his objections seemed to suggest. Because at the end of verse 46, Philip gave Nathanael the same invitation Jesus had been giving to people, come and see, and he does it. Philip and Nathanael had known each other for a long time, after all, and Nathanael had never seen Philip behave like this. Practically running to keep up with Philip, Nathanael's first glimpse of Jesus left him thoroughly unimpressed. There was nothing above average about this man, at least until he spoke. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Just as he had done with Peter, Jesus' first words to Nathanael were not exactly what you'd expect to hear from someone you'd just met. Where was the cordial greeting, the classic shalom, the sup? An Israelite in whom there is no deceit? What did that mean? Here again, Jesus layered his words with at least two levels of meaning. Most obviously, he was revealing that he knew something true about Nathanael. The man was honest, painfully so. But why point out that he was an Israelite? Was he implying that Jewish people were commonly dishonest? Maybe, but probably not. Israelites 
were called Israelites because their great, 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 great grandfather was named Israel. Or at least, he was eventually named Israel by God himself. But before Yahweh had renamed him Israel, he had been named Jacob, Yaakov, which means deceiver. Jacob lived an entire lifetime refusing to receive gifts from God because he was so determined to do things on his own. Sometimes this involved lying, hiding, and generally doing things that we would agree lacked integrity. Jesus, in a sentence, identified Nathanael as his father's son, minus the deceit. A man like his forefather should have been. And perhaps a man representing what the nation of Israel could and should be, but had failed to be. Jesus was revealing to Nathanael the potential of his true nature, not just that he was honest. It's as if he looked Nathanael in the eyes and told him, you are a person capable not just of honesty, but of total dependence on the God of your fathers in a way that Israel himself never managed. Whether Nathanael caught this full meaning in this moment or not, we don't know. After all, Philip could have told Jesus that he was a blunt guy. So he stuck to questions. Read verse 48 with me. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. If only John the Apostle had included Philip's reaction to Jesus' remark. Did he laugh at the absurd strangeness of this reply from Jesus? Or did something within him sense that Jesus had just pierced Nathanael to his core? The fig tree has a long history for the people of Israel. Perhaps you can hear, as if from a distant memory, the rustle of leaves ripped from their branches by the handfuls as a husband and wife in a garden at the beginning of time stripped the nearest fig tree to cover their naked bodies. Freshly awakened to sin and shame and torment, Adam and Eve did damage control. The fruit of their failure was the compulsion to hide from God and from each other. Failure, shame, division, hiding now so common to the human experience. And thousands of years later, a sole member of God's chosen people stood shaken to his core because Jesus had just revealed he knew Nathanael's hiding place. What sent Nathanael into hiding could have been the shame of his own sin and failure. It could have been the shame he carried from someone's sin against him a violation of his humanity by the sins of another. He could have hid from God or even himself because of his spiritual doubt that paralyzed him, or because he was depressed by the weight of his life circumstances or grieving a great loss. Perhaps he was hiding because he was angry or because he was exhausted and couldn't face it all anymore. Or maybe it was just easier to live in denial than deal with the consequences. Don't miss the irony. Regardless of the cause, the man who hid nothing from anyone had been hiding from God 
others, and perhaps even himself. But something happened within Nathaniel at this moment. Something broke. Whatever was happening when he was under the fig tree, Jesus had shown Nathaniel that he knew something only God could have known, which could only mean one thing. Look at verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In a matter of moments, Nathaniel's unbelief transformed into a belief so great he knew Jesus was more than just a human Messiah. He was God come to visit. In fact, Nathaniel becomes the first person in John's gospel to recognize Jesus as God. Nathaniel wasn't convinced by argumentation or debate. Jesus didn't come to him with proof or an explanation of how he fulfilled prophecy. Rather, he came to him with a simple message. When Nathanael thought he was all alone, he was not. God himself had been there, had seen him, was seeing him. Jesus offered not proof, but his presence. While the other disciples so far had believed because they had seen Jesus. Nathaniel believed because he had been seen by Jesus. Jesus must have smiled at Nathaniel's faith, but there was still so much more he had come to offer. Jesus looked at Nathaniel and then gestured to the group of disciples who had gathered by this point. Read verses 50 to 51 with me. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Clever teacher that he is. Jesus was tying back to his earlier reference to the father of Israel, Jacob, and making yet another comparison to Jacob. In Genesis 28, after deceiving both his father and his twin brother, Jacob runs for his life. Totally alone and terrified, Jacob falls asleep in an open field. The author of Genesis writes this in Genesis 28:10. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Something powerful was taking place here, for Jesus was making his disciples a promise. Even with Jacob's deception and failure to trust God, God had appeared to him in that dream with a promise to bless him. But for these true Israelites, these followers of Jesus, Jesus promised that heaven would open and instead of a ladder, he himself would bridge the chasm between heaven and earth. But this was a conditional promise Jesus made. He didn't tell his disciples that heaven would open no matter what in their lives. He said, if you believe, you will see heaven open. He was giving his disciples a challenge and a choice. A choice that if they kept on believing, they would see heaven open.
What wisdom can we learn from this story? First, as far as it pertains to learning to read the Bible, do you see how the Old Testament stories about Jacob and even Adam and Eve became an interpretive key for unlocking this strange little conversation? We needed those pieces to get it, like to really get what was going on. Please receive that as encouragement. Keep reading your Bibles, the whole thing. Secondly, this story has both a word of comfort and a challenge for all of us. This interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel shows us something about how God responds to his child who is discouraged and finding it hard to trust him. It's really moving to me. You know, for the first disciples in this passage, all they needed was John's testimony, and they were ready to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But Nathaniel needed something more. I'm sure he believed in a general sense that Messiah would come at some point, but he didn't believe he would come in his day, let alone have something personally to say to him. Nathaniel needed a personal touch from God. And I think we all find ourselves at this point. Life has fallen apart and things don't really feel like they're getting better. I'm thinking of the long seasons of waiting with unfulfilled desires, broken marriages, wayward children, cynicism because of the state of the world, dead ends in chasing your dreams, trauma and abuse. Most of those things take time and intentional work to heal from, but wouldn't it absolutely make it so much more bearable to go through that if God himself showed up and said, I was there. I was there. I was present when you thought that you were totally alone and invisible. I see you. Now, I don't think that this story promises us that God himself is going to come and, and personally touch us and speak to us in these moments. I think he may. But it seems that the Bible and our lives would suggest that God doesn't always work this way. What we can learn from this story is God's posture towards his children when we're in this space. He in no way condemns Nathaniel. He doesn't speak harshly to him or tell him to get over something. He also doesn't come with answers. He comes to Nathaniel in compassion and assures him he is seen and known and not alone. This story does promise that he sees you too. And if it feels hard to trust that, um, I don't have an easy answer for that. I've been there. I think that those moments bring us to a choice that we get to make. And this is the challenge that this story has for us. It's the choice that was before Adam and Eve. It's the choice that Jesus gave to his disciples at the end of the story. And it's the choice for us. Will you trust God at his word? Will you believe even when you don't see? John the Apostle painstakingly noted throughout his gospel account something that Jesus was continually emphasizing, that there are two kinds of belief. The first kind of belief results in salvation. 
It is the process by which we come to a point in our lives where we're able to say like Nathaniel, Jesus is God and I believe he died for my sins to be forgiven and I can enjoy eternal life in perfect union with God. That's belief, amen. But that's where it stops for many of us. We believe and we put our faith in Jesus for salvation and that's where it stops. We can believe in Jesus for eternal life and then still kind of plod through life without expecting to see God's goodness personally. That's exactly where Nathaniel was at. But Jesus taught his disciples using his conversation with Nathaniel that there is a second kind of belief and a better way forward with God. It is an ongoing and continuing faith that occurs right in the middle of life's circumstances. Like Nathaniel, we can let what we see in the natural world around us affect our ability to see things spiritually to the point that we give up expecting anything more from God than what we see around us. And when we do that, we've got it backwards. Our spiritual eyes, our belief in Jesus and who he is, can and should affect not just what we see, but what we expect to see. This theme in the text was a total gut punch for me. About four years ago, um, it was right after I graduated college, I had just moved home to Washington. Um, I was making my way through a difficult breakup and I found myself despairing over some things that were happening and weren't happening in my life. And it was like everywhere I looked, I encountered more disappointment. And I started to just expect to be disappointed. And I remember vividly this one morning, I was kneeling on my bedroom floor putting on eyeliner when I heard the Lord say, I'm going to teach you to expect to see my goodness. I very rarely hear the Lord like this, and I'm sure I messed up my eyeliner. Um, at the time, I thought that the Lord just meant he didn't want me to live in this despair anymore, which I think was true. But it wasn't until I was prepping this message that I had one of these light bulb moments where I was like, wait a second, God, God wants way more for us than just the absence of despair. He wants the expectation of good. Let me explain. You can live your life, like I said, plodding along after you get saved by Jesus, just basically going about your life like you always have. And when I say you, I mean me. Or we can choose to believe what Jesus says here, that if we believe, we will see greater things. Well, believe what? What do we have to believe? Well, I think Jesus means more than just believing that he offers us eternal life. He means believing the promises in his word, trusting his character, trusting that he is at work even when we don't see it. Jesus says, if you believe, you will see. It's a step beyond what even the disciples do in this story. We've got four guys who believe because they see Jesus, and then we have Nathaniel believing because he was seen, and then Jesus flips it around and says, if you believe, you will see. Which makes me wonder, what are we not seeing because we're not believing? This kind of belief, this second kind of belief is a choice. 
It is a choice based on the opposite of what we see and what our emotions are telling us in a given moment. A choice we make when everything we see and feel actually seems to contradict God's goodness and love. It's a choice based only on what we know of God's character in his word so that we can say with the psalmist, yet I believe I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. This verse, Psalm 27, 13, is going to be our adventure verse of the week, um, what you guys can meditate on if you guys want to put it up. Um, it says, I would have despaired unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And this is really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to do. If we find ourselves feeling like Nathaniel, totally discouraged, we have this same choice. And God's not condemning us for being in the place where we have to make it. We, and we don't have to, that's the thing. We can live as followers of Jesus without really believing we will see greater things and we'll still meet Jesus in eternity, I think, and have eternal life, but we will have lived our lives without seeing what God could do in and through us if we lived like we expected him to keep his word. Salvation is just the starting point. Today, the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you. If believing is seeing, what is God asking you to believe today? Is there a disappointment you're carrying? What is the Lord saying to you about that? Are you walking in the wake of dreams that seem to have died? What does it look like to trust God's character and make your way forward? Or, like the abominable snowman, have sin and shame made you the most monstrous version of yourself, a person you don't even recognize? Are you hiding? What is the Spirit saying to you? You know, the vision Jesus shares with Nathaniel is so powerful, the one of angels ascending and descending, because angels are heaven's messengers. He's saying, if you believe, help, heaven's help is on the way. It may not look like how you thought it would, but it is coming. This is what it means to choose your own adventure. Choose to believe Jesus only for salvation and you've gone as far as you can go. But choose to really take God at his word in your most painful, impossible circumstances and it will unlock a lifetime of adventure to come. Your adventure with Jesus is just getting started. Would you guys stand so we can close in prayer together? Set ourselves apart to, to make this choice, if you're willing. Heavenly Father, there is a time to pray what we see of you, and there is a time to pray what we know of you. Today we choose to pray what we know of you, 
that no matter what we see around us, that you are a good God and a giver of good to your children and that you are not yet done with this world that you have made. Help us, Father, to expect to see your goodness and to walk forward into the greater things that you have still for us to do. As we go from this place, Lord, would you guide us into your next adventure for us? We say we believe, Lord, would you help our unbelief? In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you guys so much.